the things that we hold on to and the things that we've been talking about, especially those of us a little bit older, we're going to have to transition here. Uh, let me give you an example. If I said to you, um, how come we don't talk about Heavenly Mother? Do we have a Heavenly Mother? We do. How come we don't talk about her? Okay, what is our... We have... Guys, let's admit it. We have a stock answer that we give to that question. Uh, okay, how come? To protect her. And you keep, you do the whole explanation thing. We talked about poorly so Heavenly Father didn't want her name drugged through the mud uh, the same way that his name has been drugged through the mud, right? Mm-hmm. When was the last time you heard that taught in, in general conference? When was the last time you heard that explanation in any of our curriculum magazines? When was the last time you heard it in, read it in the Enzyme? You heard it in a home teaching lesson? Last month. Oh, last, last month. month. <laughs> well, I, we, we do. I know. We know that we have a heavenly mother. We don't have any information about her. But we have had this stock answer for years and years. Well, the heavenly father is trying to protect her name. It's a myth. We don't know why it is that we don't know more about her. We would love to know more about her. We don't have it. Why don't we have it? We don't know. And, and yeah, we, do, we don't need it. It's not essential to our... Other than the fact that we were a... Were a and we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end of this. But, but what I'm saying to you is that part of what has gotten us in trouble in the past is that we have these stock answers to things and we're just used to repeating them. And that gets us in trouble at times. So we're going to have to be more careful. So let me give you the latest round of the church trying to be trying to tighten up and sharpen what we know and what we don't know. Um, anybody know what the religious educator is? Yep. Okay, what, what's the religious ed- educator? It's a publication done by Brigham and University Religious Right. It's a journal. It's a journal sent out three times a year. And the religious educator, by the way, anybody can subscribe to it. I get it. Uh, and it is wonderful articles and scholarship and everything that go out primarily to institute and religion teachers and seminary teachers. And, and it is those within the religious education departments of the church. Okay? And, and they are fabulous. But because this is stuff going out to uh, full-time religious educators in the church, they try to be... Uh, on point with a number of things that they're trying to share. So let me tell you the one that just came out in this uh, in this uh, journal that just came out, and and this was kind of a little bit of a shock to me. But as I thought through it, it made sense. Part of what's been happening over the last ten years, especially, is that we've had the Joseph Smith Paper Project, and the church has gone to great efforts to go to everything that Joseph ever wrote. Things were written about him in this among his contemporaries at the time to make sure that we know exactly his words from the closest sources at all possible. Okay, and I, I sat uh, a few years ago. Uh, my class at Education Week came right after a presentation that was begin that was being given by the scholars that were doing the Joseph Smith Paper Project. Okay, 
and uh, so I was sitting next to one of the one of the authors of the work, uh, one of the researchers, and I, we had a few minutes before class was starting. And I just said, uh, "How much? How how open has the church has been? How how any pushback at all from?" the archives and historical department and everything, he says, you cannot believe how open the church has been. The only thing that they've held back from us is the obvious information about the temple. They, they can't put all of that stuff in there. Outside of that, it's all there. And so they have just been real, they've opened the vaults to us and it's all available to us. So now what, what's happened, especially in about the last five to six years, is that uh, uh, a number of group BYU faculty, and specifically two foundations. One is the Maxwell Institute that was Farms. Mm -hmm. The other one is the Interpreter uh, Journal, uh, uh, being uh, edited by uh, Daniel Peterson. We have two uh, scholarly groups just pouring through the papers and trying to put everything together that is giving us more valuable information on Joseph Smith and the church than we have ever had. So out of that also then says, okay, and we have to shift gears. So here's the one out of the religious educator that they just pointed out. Some of our resources that we have been using to quote Joseph Smith are now outdated and, and religious educators are being told not to use them. Do you know that very quietly a publication that we've used for, for years and years has now gone out of print with no, with no effort to try and, and bring it back into print? Miracle of forgiveness. Miracle of forgiveness. I believe that if uh, President Kimball were on the Quorum of the Twelve writing committee today, I think he would say, take it out of print. I do. Because he would look at it. It was written at a different time under a different set of standings. And now we look at it and some of the assumptions, for instance, made about homosexuality and stuff like that, are they're wrong. They're just wrong. About the origins of it, know that, and he and I, he would be the first one to say, I would write a much different book now than I did back when it was used. And yet, so often in my work, when I've got people going through disciplinary councils, and I'll say, Did the bishop assign to you? Yes. Don't. Re, re, I've got some other things: believing Christ, uh, the infinite atonement, things that I think will teach you more about forgiveness than the miracle of forgiveness. Is that harsh? It just means that the church is growing and expanding and maturing and, and, we're, and, and you're just watching this shift. That's what I'm saying. For those of us with a little snow on, on the mountain here, we're saying it's, it, it's, it's shifting and you've gotta, you've, we've got to move with the shift. So, uh, so two others that they're now saying, don't quote really from these sources. Okay? Ready? Feel the shift? <laughs> Teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Uh, and one other, they're saying don't, don't really quote from this one either. Why would you guess they're, they're suggesting not? Here, here's the quote from, from the religious educator. 
so many of the well, not many. Some of the quotes in these books attributed to Joseph Smith were not made by Joseph Smith. Uh huh. Yeah. What's that? This is the uh, the church uh, history. This is the history of the church was compiled uh, years ago, and it's been available in a lot of different forms. Uh, and and again, a lot of it, so much of it is true, but so many times, some of the quotes attributed to Joseph Smith in here were made by scribes, were made by other people attributing quotes to him. And when they're going through the Joseph Smith paper project, they're saying he didn't say that at all. So in some cases, again, we're getting beat up. Uh, or people are struggling or questioning uh, because Joseph Smith said this or this or this, and the quote he didn't make it at all. Okay, how you doing with that one? Yes. Oh, and so now, so so next behind that, here's two other statements that came out of this uh, latest article. Uh, one says uh, that also means that current. Manuals of the church, as of this year, current manuals of the church, whether it's institute or seminary or anything, take far precedent over any of the past manuals of the church. So in other words, manuals, New Testament manuals that were written in 2005, 1995, are now out of date given our current scholarship because we're being more accurate in, in what we're doing. So that may mean that we have to go back... If we're quoting stuff that is 10 years old, 20 years old, we need to stop. And you're going to find a lot of the stuff attributed to Joseph Smith was Joseph Smith, and you'll find it in the new manuals. You'll find it in the new curriculum. You'll find it in, quoted in general conference. They're there. They're current. It's just that with, with a lot of us, if I look at my files, I, was, I still have files that I collected while I was in... Uh, as a seminary student in the 70s. And I can show you things that I have in my files from the 70s. Well, I'm, I'm in the process right now of dumping that stuff because I'm going to assume that it is outdated and that I need to really be updating. Do we need to shred it or just recycle it? <laughs> Sh shred it and then in the dark of night go it out of trouble. <laughs> no, I think most of the time what we have is accurate. It's just that there are going to be a handful of quotes and we don't always know exactly which ones that is. So the church is just saying, we need to up our game. And based on the most current information that we have, be very, very specific about the things that we know that, that, that the early brethren said. May I just substitute a verb in your description? Yes. Instead of dumping, can we say yes. refining? Refining. <laughs> Growing. Maturing. Thank you. You're dumping like it's garbage. Yeah. We're not dumping. Editing, Editing is even better. <laughs> so does Mormon doctrine fall under this? Yes. <laughs> I would edit. I would refine. I would retire. Mormon doctrine. A long time ago. Yes. Yep. All right. Uh, okay, and so, so one other quote that jumped out at me in, in this article, and I, I meant to bring the book. I'll, I'll bring it next week if you want to see this. Uh, that, that, they're, that they're directing to um, 
and, and I think this is a good reminder, but this is what they're directing to uh, religious educators throughout the church. It says, uh, single quotes by a single brother on a single occasion, no matter how well thought out, do not constitute doctrine applied to the church. So often, again, if somebody's going to say this is what the Mormons believe because Orson Hyde said this in 1853 or because Brigham Young said this in 1846. No, it doesn't. We need to, part of this new shift that we're making is allowing prophets to be human beings and not infallible. And if we're not sure what is and what isn't our doctrine, again, we go right back to what we've been saying all along. How do we know what the doctrine of the church is? Is it preached in general conference? Is it in our curriculum manuals? Do you find it in the enzyme? Have you found it taught by a, a variety of brethren currently? There's some very ways that we can know what our doctrine is. So, does uh, that does that help? Yeah. Yeah. In, in our area, this is what we needed in this regional conference. But you know what? Even with that, um, I was asking uh, President Wilding uh, if we could have uh, copies of, of that because I just thought it was wonderful instruction. And he says, no, we've been, we, we got it, but we've just not been instructed to hand it out. I don't know if they just didn't have a chance to run it through correlation or, or whatever. But. You know, for years, the church has given church employees uh, a nice leather-bound book. Two of the fairly recent ones, not, I can't remember what exact year, one was Teachings of the Prophet sure. Smith, another one was Miracle Forgiveness. Yeah. Nice, you know, gold. I mean, it looked like scriptures. So. I know. He said the church employees used to get these very nice bound copies of Miracle of Forgiveness and Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Those are nice. <laughs> it's just that now we're having to say, be careful, because I because I have a I have a really beat up copy of uh, uh, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph. It's on my Kindle, and I'm still planning. And, and by the way, I'm still planning on on using it as a reference to me. But I'm also, if I'm going to use anything out of it, I'm going to have, I'm going to double check and make sure that I have other sources that are have already that have quoted this currently, so that I know. And specifically, I'm going back to, especially through uh, uh, the Maxwell Institute interpreter and stuff, to see what current uh, research is saying about those about that particular quote or instance or something like that. Okay. So what do we do with these? I mean, their kids argue over who gets. <laughs> the kids argue. I, I would, I would, I would set them aside. Is that journal Yes, the religious educator. In fact, if you'll, if you were just to Google uh, LD, uh, LDS and then religious educator journal, you'd see it. I think it costs twelve bucks a year. Is it fifteen? And it is fabulous. There's always a, there's always an article from the, from the. Uh, one of the general authorities, often from an apostle. It's called the religious educator. So, all right. All that to say, 
Some of, and, and let me give you one, one last example, then we'll move on. Some of what I have talked about this semester as we've, as we've talked about uh, Josiah and the Deuteronomists, meaning that uh, Laman and Lemuel, it turns out, were devout, probably devout Jews. And, and were trying to defend the Torah in some of their things. Now, I think they became more evil and as they had murder in their heart that didn't go away. And so I think that and hanging on to lies and beginning to be, their pride and everything getting caught up. But as they're leaving Jerusalem, they are, they are Deuteronomists. They, they believe in defending the Torah and, and all of that. that. This is what's coming out of our current research. It's kind of an exciting time for, uh, for educators because we have more available information to us than we've ever had. So. But it also says that we've grown to the point where we can deal with that. Yeah, we have grown. We've grown as a church and we need to... The, the, again, I just think the problem is sometimes when we've been in the church more than about 18 months <laughs> that we want to hang on to old ideas. Uh, we kind of get crushed a little bit by the idea that maybe, just maybe, John Taylor's watch didn't stop a bullet. You think about the size of the bullet and hitting a watch and suddenly... Uh, that really what happened is as he turned to the window, he got hit in his hip from one of the shots from the door that drove him up against the wall and up against the, uh, the, the window sill and that that's what cracked the watch. That was the story. We, yeah, the, the story of the bullet. That, yeah, I know. I know. We have, our, we have our cherished things what we really like to hang on to. Like me finding out uh, that really... Sometimes people have used the east door of the Salt Lake Temple. I was always told growing up that only the Savior would open the east door of the Salt Lake Temple. And then I found out that workers used it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And that Lorenzo Snow's wife had an office just, I've seen it, just on the other side of that door. Uh, She would go back and forth all the time through that door. So, you know, we just have these cherished beliefs. And we're kind of, in our maturing process, we kind of have to begin to carefully, lovingly edit them and set them aside. Yeah. I just read um, that we've always, I've always considered that April the 6th, the real birthday of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Not so. Because <laughs> they really don't know. They really don't know. We're guessing. Exactly. I know. I know. All right. So that, for, so, so that said... Now let's move forward. Uh, again, so, so, so let me just, as I lead into this, as we're, reading, as we're reading through these things today, and the magnificence, again, that is uh, Lehi's information to Jacob, and then Jacob, what Jacob taught uh, at the, at, uh, as a prophet, try and put that against the backdrop of, of this rough son, Joseph Smith, uh, trying to grow in from a backwoods country boy into the prophet that he was at Carthage, and, and but it, but at this point, this is coming out through a pretty rough process, and it just points out the beauty that is the Book of Mormon in, in my mind. Okay, all right, that's it. Let's start with it. Let's start with uh, uh, a, a quote from last time. And then one of those things that I think we have really in the last 20 years, you've watched the church really kind of make, make uh, some refining steps with this. We talked last time about 
2 Nephi 2, Wherefore, Jacob, thy soul shall be blessed. Wherefore, I know thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of the Redeemer. Not through your merits, but through his merits. Okay? And the way is prepared from the, uh, from the fall of man, and salvation is free. Now, if somebody is going to approach you and say, doesn't that, that, doesn't that kind of easy grace, doesn't that really mean that we kind of get off easy? Doesn't this... Um, this is a little bit related to the, the times when, when I'm working with, for instance, a husband who's struggling with pornography, and it's been, and they're really having a hard time with pornography, and I and I have and I sit down with the wife, and I have to say, I need you to know that he will relapse. There's no way that you can say to him, you are never allowed, it, you cannot ever look at this stuff ever again. And I said, I don't care how many promises he makes to you and the bishop. I promise he will relapse at some point. It's an addiction. They do that. And the retort is always what? Well, aren't you giving him permission? Aren't, aren't you opening the door and saying, if he does it again, it's okay? Aren't we better off saying, like the, the bishop that I talked to on the phone not too long ago who said... I took his recommend away from him and I told him until he would, could promise me that he would never ever do it again, I wasn't going to give his recommend back. And I said, Bishop, that's a death sentence to him in the temple. So, is this, is this too easy? Are we saying, because we're going to be, we're going to be, uh, Saved through the merits of the Savior, not through our merits, doesn't it mean that it kind of gives us carte blanche to kind of, you know, sow our wild oats and kind of do a bit of a deathbed thing and just not worry so much if we sin because, hey, he's got us covered and it's about him, it's not about us. How would you answer that? You still have to try, but you know what, you're going to fail. So, so the Savior's got your back. So I guess it's kind of okay if you fail. You do the best you can. You, you do the best you can. Always. You can only fail at trying. Yeah. So you're going to pick yourself up and try, and that helps. But again, are we being too soft on sinners? And we probably know the intentions of our heart. Yeah. And we intend, when we sit here and take the sacrament... Don't you sit here and take the sacrament and say, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be, be better, and then what do we do that next week? We mess up. But the nice thing is I've got grace to cover me, so if I mess up, it's not that big a deal. I would have to say true repentance is a very, very difficult... Oh, it is. Heart-wrenching experience. Okay, but true repentance means I will promise never, ever, ever to do it again. Ever. And then I do, and what does that say? I didn't really mean it. I didn't try hard enough. Oh, oh it means we're human. Ah. Yeah. And, and that becoming process means that you will have relapses between here and there. Yeah. 
and Satan is is in, intent on making us feel so badly about ourselves that we give up and stop trying. Uh, you know, I heard here's another conversation from Thanksgiving because as we baptized uh, one of my grandsons, a couple of my kids said uh, we somehow got in this discussion. And, and they said they remember driving away from their own baptism. Oh, here, and here's, a, here's another uh, Mormon Mishnah. Cindy coined the term. Mishnah meaning uh, <laughs> tradition. So this is Mormon Mishnah. Two of our kids, as they're, as they're driving away from the church, go, um, I'm clean, I'm clean, I hope I don't mess up. And then the first time they have like a bad thought or something, oh, now I messed it up. And 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 because I'm finally now clean. When were they dirty? Is ba- when we baptize somebody at the age of eight, are we are we removing any sins from these kids? No. But pa- I was taught that growing up. You go into the water dirty. You're coming up out clean. So a we missed on two points. One, and it was not the water in the first place that does the cleansing. It is the the Spirit and the Savior and the and that cleanses us, the baptism of fire. And number two, it's children that are clean and, and they don't they're not they're not sinning. Now I get when we teach to primary kids the concept of what baptism is, that baptism is a cleansing process. I don't know about the nuances of all of that, and probably not a not a lot of harm if they're believing that baptism is a process by which they become cleansed. I just think that somewhere though as we, we should know and as they get older they need to begin to understand that it was by the water we keep the commandment and it's by the baptism of fire that we're cleansed. But at age 8 they're making, this is a sign to their heavenly father that they're willing to follow. So I tried, when I gave the talk at at my grandson's baptism, I was very careful to say you don't come up out of the water clean. I just didn't want to go down that road. And every Sunday when we take the sacrament, we're we're working on that. We're, we're and we yeah, and we're going to relapse. And rather than beat ourselves up every time we have said we'll never do it again, okay. So so I, well, I guess what I'm saying is I'm you're, you're watching part of the church's understanding about relying more and more on the merits of the Savior to, to change. And then we're going to find out where the ordinances of the gospel now st- now play a role in this. Yeah. I happened to met yesterday um, somebody made a comment in their testimony about the importance of the sacrament and how, you know, whatever temptations and however bad we get during the week that, you know, we have that refreshment uh, in having the sacrament. And the thought came across my mind, is that why it's so hard on Sunday morning? <laughs> oh, he just beats the heck out of us on Sunday morning, doesn't it? I used to always think about that. You know, we, you know, when, when the kids were small and we had one car and they're all crammed in there, they was like a cat fight going on on the way to church, and you know, my daughter staggers out of the car and three little boys and their ties are like, <laughs> you know, and they're like, okay, now let's walk into sacrament and be peaceful and take the sacrament. And you're wanting to wring these guys next because we're still all bleeding from the drive over. <laughs> uh-huh. 
forgiveness was that as soon as you have a desire to recant and start, yeah. you're forgiven. Yeah. Yes. You beat it, he, he forgives you immediately. And that, yeah. that is the greatest doctrine I think I've ever heard. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, yeah she, talking about how fast the Savior forgives. I, re- I kind of think with the lady that was adulterous that was dragged into the temple thing and dropped in front of the, caught in the act, and the Savior says, you know, go that way, sin no more. I think that's pretty quick. She has lifestyle changes that she's got to make, but the forgiveness on this thing is amazing how fast He forgives if our hearts, because our hearts can change in our desire to move forward. Well, that is that easy grace? <laughs> that's powerful grace. That is, the, that is the power of what the atonement is given to us sinners, I think. Yeah. Stretching? Okay. May I just add, this must be my pesky warning or whatever. But, <laughs> yes. But, yes, you noticed. Um, I haven't been in primary in 100 years, but are they not teaching that baptism is a covenant? It is. And when you teach them, a child about baptism, you don't teach it about that cleaning up stuff. You teach about walking through the doorway and entering into oh, the Oh, absolutely. You walk through the gate. Do we still teach kids that when they come up out of the water, they're going to be clean? Yes. Yeah. Songs about it. yeah, we do. And again, I don't know to an eight-year-old if it's necessary to really get into all the nuances. I don't know. All you need to teach is that it is a covenant. It's a gate. It's a covenant. It's a sign. It is the... Yeah. I know. I know. We teach it all the time. I shall review the primary manual. <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> now, older people, that's a different deal, but also with a different level of understanding, right? But, yeah, even for them, it's not the baptismal process. But, again, if somebody is baptized unworthily, Joseph Smith said, you might as well baptize a sack of sand. And he really did say that. <laughs> well, yes, I've got, I've got multiple sources on that. <laughs> I know, now we're going to be second guessing all the time. Yeah, right. Right. Okay, so here's, here's where we're going, and here's, the, here's where Lehi is teaching Jacob, and Jacob is now going to teach his people, and it is this... It's this balance that we're going to talk about. This sense that salvation is free. It is freely offered. It is freely given. Um, That's why I guess I've been on a toot lately in in some of the places I've spoken about how critical it is that uh, grateful people are good receivers. We receive well gratitude. And we receive the service of others. Grateful people are good receivers. They, They allow themselves to be served. Part of it is because our greatest gifts, the atonement, gifts of the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, they're all gifts given to somebody who didn't deserve it. And given anyway from somebody who loves us. We don't earn any of that. But salvation is not given to somebody that doesn't deserve it. It's offered to somebody who doesn't deserve it, but they reject it. Right. Salvation is free. By the way, how many times people try to serve you and you go, nah, I don't need it, we're fine. And we're just going, no, we got it covered. <laughs> Salvation is free and we're trying to balance that against obedience. So now we're saying, what if, if salvation is free and it's not on our merits, it's on His, 
then what role does obedience play? So there's a balancing thing that we need to be able to understand. And Jacob does a wonderful job of negotiating this. Okay? Alright, so... Let's start. Let's go to Second Nephi two. I, I was trying to look at. I trying to find a picture of Satan. I, I think I found him. <laughs> hey. Let me see you. Let's just say there is available to us in a very sacred place a wonderful film <laughs> where Satan is kind of like college buddy guy. Hey. <laughs> I'm not creepy. I'm just helping out, man. Hey, okay. I think that's safe. Anyway, let's go to let's go to Second Nephi two eighteen. Uh, let's see. Um, now I'm going to do this in reverse order. I know that we're supposed to. We try, we try to read these things in, in order of verses. I'm going to go backwards because he's going to say some things and then I want to, to work backwards to, to the, the assumption that he's drawing on this. Okay, So let's start with 2 Nephi 2.18 where Lehi says, Because Satan had fallen from heaven and had become miserable forever, he sought also the misery of all mankind. That's his goal, is to, for us to be miserable. Now watch how he creates misery. There's a very specific way. And it's opposite of the way that the world thinks. This is how he creates misery. Wherefore he said unto Eve, Yea, even that old serpent who is the devil, who is the father of all lies. Wherefore he said, Partake of the forbidden fruit, and ye shall not die. He did not intend for Eve to die. There was another fruit we're going to take afterwards. So you can live forever in your sins. I don't intend for you to die. So, I know Heavenly Father said you were going to die. You're not going to die. Come on, I'll show you a way so you don't have to die. Partake of the forbidden fruit and you shall not die. But you shall be as God. This is what God does. You know... Now, so one of the ways, so in essence, here's what, here's what he's doing. Here's the, here's, here was my idea on that, above it. Misery then comes when there are no consequences to our actions. What he was trying to shelter Adam and Eve from was, you can do what you want to do and... What, there won't be consequences to your actions, or at least the ones God says there will be. I'm going to give you a different set of results, but I know what God said about that. But He's not. But that's not true. I'm going to shelter you from God's consequences. We can, and and we can have no joy because there is no bad. Man is that he might have joy also means man is that there will be misery. How, how many people in the world today try to operate off the idea that we should be sheltered from consequences? 
Isn't that the way things are constructed? You can do whatever you want. So much of what we struggle... Let me give you an example. How, how, how much in certain circles do people absolutely stand on their head so that you have the right to have sex with whoever you want, as many times as you want, whenever you want, in, in whatever way, and there aren't going to be any consequences to your choices. What, if that's the philosophy, you're going to get to have, to have sex whenever, whoever, as much as you want, that, that means that we have to shelter you from... How, how do we do that? How do we make sure there's no consequences? Huh? Birth control and abortion and all the laws around uh, homosexuality. We're trying to open it up so that you can be whatever you want sexually. If you, again, if you're going to be in if, if anymore in any of the legal things in California, you get to choose between six genders. Six genders. And, and, and now, now the other consequence is, if you're going to have sex with whoever you want to have it as often as you want it, you also have to be free from that guilt thing. Yeah, that guilt problem. The emotional stuff. So how are we going to take care of the emotional consequences that come from having free sex whenever? First of all, get rid of God because they're just putting a heavy thing on you. That's just, and that's hate speech. So we're going to first of all eliminate hate speech and try and get religion completely out of the marketplace because they're the ones that keep peddling that you're doing something wrong. I'm not sure that's 100% right. I was talking to my brother who lives in California. Mm -hmm. And he said that in the bathrooms in the schools now have non-intersex. Yeah. Yeah, and you can go wherever you want on that. You just want to make sure that you have the freedom of sexuality. Yes. From evil. There you go. Thank you. No, I missed that. That it is. That that's an important point. So it wasn't just knowing good and evil, because God knows that. It's it's being able to differentiate the difference between good from evil. And I'm going to suggest to you that part of the consequences and why we obey is so that we are taught to be able to distinguish good from evil. Thank you, Arjun. Uh, okay, so let me let me work backwards now. So here's 18. So as long as we have in mind the the world says happiness means I can do I have the freedom to do whatever I want. Lehi is saying misery comes from having no consequences. That's that's the opposite side of the barn, isn't it? Okay, so now let's go back and see, let's see how this works. So now we're going to go 16. Wherefore, the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself. Therefore, man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by one way or the other. Okay? Yeah. Now let's go to 14. 
Now, my sons, I speak unto you concerning these things for your profit and learning. For there is a God, and he hath created all things, both in heaven and the earth, and all things that in them are. Now, I, I've misunderstood this verse for years, and, and it was only this week that I think I finally understood it at a much different level. Because he said, he created things both to act and those to be acted upon. And I've tended to believe over the years that that separated all mankind kind of into two camps. There are those that act and are righteous, and those that are acted upon, that's wicked. And the more that we don't keep the commandments, we become more acted upon, and those that are maintain their free agency, they continue to be able to act independently. And I think that's probably to a certain extent true. But here's, here's the concept that I finally got. Again, sometimes I can be slow here. Each time that we choose to act, we, and we use our agency that we fought so hard over in the pre-mortal life, each time that we choose to act, we are then acted upon. I believe that all of us both act and are acted upon. How are we doing? Are we swimming a little deep today? You're hanging, hang with me for a second. See if it makes sense. We, we, any time that we, that we decide, like an obedience thing, we're, we're going to act, right? We're either going to obey or not. Or we're not going to obey, or we're not going to do it, and we're going to abstain. Okay? Any, so, when we do that, one, one of two things happen. If I, if I choose to act and I obey a commandment, Am I then acted upon? Sure. I'm acted upon by the Spirit. And how does the, what does the Spirit do to me if I, if I choose to continue to obey? Strengthens. Blesses. What about in the long run? Magnifies. What about five years, ten years, twenty years down the road? What has the Spirit done to us? Refined. It's what? Refined. Refined. Changed. It helps us to be stronger. Right. In other words, the more we obey, and why we obey, why, why, why grace is free but not easy, is the fact that over time, when we obey, the effect of the Spirit on us is that it changes us. It makes us different. It, it refines us. It grows us. It alters us. It makes us like Him. Therefore, when He comes in the clouds, we will be like Him. Therefore, we will recognize Him. You may have got that in your lesson yesterday out of John. We will be like Him. Why? Because we were acted upon. The Spirit changed us from fallen man to refined celestial men, men and women. Does that make sense? We've qualified. But in the qualifying, we've also been altered so that we, we now are comfortable in His light. Yeah. And I think that's the sad thing about with Satan because when we follow Satan, we change. And we become harder... For the spirit to to reach us, 
Thank you, Barbara. Good job. <laughs> yeah, done good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> because that, that's exactly what happens. If we choose not to obey or we're, we are breaking commandments, we are also acted upon, aren't we? We are acted upon by Him. We're acted upon so that what happens to our heart when we continue to disobey over time? Are, are we not changed? Don't, do we not become different people? I think that's what happened to Laman and Lemuel. I think they were devout Jews who became hardened by their disobedience and, and became more evil over time. And as people become more hardened, they don't feel, so they don't feel those consequences like you were saying, the six different genders or whatever. They don't feel the consequences anymore. No. That's true. So, so the whisperings of the Spirit, those, those tender things, people don't get. They just don't hear it because our hearts have to be changed. See, we talk about the change of heart. We always talk about it in the positive, right? That there's a change of heart meaning that we're going to be, become more like Him and we love more and we serve more and we become more di divine. And that's all true. But isn't there also a change of heart in the other direction? That we become harder and and, and, and blinded to the truth, and, and whoa, 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 it says in, in 2 Nephi 9. There's all the woes. Okay? So I, I guess what I'm saying to you is that man, mankind, each one of us cannot be neutral. We are going to be acted upon. And, we, and, our, and our simple choice is, what power will act on us? And how will we be changed? Because we cannot remain neutral. We will be enticed and then act in one way or the other and we will become changed here or we will become changed there. It's what Hugh Nibley used to call the doctrine of the two ways. Going two ways. Does that make sense? How are we doing? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, right. And their hearts are changed. And you can honestly see the light they used to have is not within their eyes anymore. It's hard to watch, isn't it? When you watch the lights go out in somebody that had a testimony, this maybe served as a missionary and they went out and they taught and all that kind of stuff. And then they go, nah, I think Joseph was a turkey and I think this and this and this and this. And I keep thinking... Explain the Book of Mormon and explain your own testimony. But you're right, they're being changed. They're being altered. I think when we're looking to do right, we're, we're looking, we're open, we're, we're teachable. But when we're on the other side, oftentimes we're looking for excuses for what we do. We're not, we're not looking within ourselves. We're right. trying to find other... Isn't it true? We become hungry. I mean, look at us, guys. It's, it's Monday morning. How many hours were you in church yesterday? 
And then you got up on Monday morning and you did what? You came back to the church for more. You know, there's a, there's a hunger there that says, I want to be fed more. You know, I, I know that, that we kept getting dogged by the by the, the people on the cruise as we were going to different places. We get to we get to Mars Hill and they're like, teach us. We want more. You know, can we just I realize that we're on vacation, but can we do a class here? We get to Ephesus. Are you going to teach us? We're we going to class here. Yeah. OK. Yeah, we'll do that. OK. We'll okay. But it was just a group of people that kept saying, we want more stuff. We're open. Teach us about what happened here in Corinth. Teach us about Paul. Teach us. We want a class. And so people are streaming around us. And it's just like, and we got the scriptures open and we're teaching. And, and everybody's just soaking it in. And, and on the cruise ship, we're teaching. And everybody else is like playing on the pool and stuff like that. And they're in there open, cracking their scriptures. I think there was a part where we just... We, we, we just want to wring it from whatever source we can give it. Yeah. Okay, so I was working on summarizing what your concept is. Yeah. Okay? So um, sin is always going to be there. Yep. No matter what. Right? Yep. We're always going to be tempted by right. sin. Yeah, right? he's good at it. Right. So that gives us the choice, freedom. Okay. Freedom of for what? Salvation. Right. Correct? Yeah. Okay. So that's what the, t the atonement's for. Sure. Okay. So we're still, like you said, we're, we're having to decide on a regular basis. Day to day. What we're going to, what side we're going to be on. Yeah. And so that's why we're having to consciously, mm. if you are consciously having to compromise. Yeah. Then you will fall into that temptation. That's right. And, and uh, by the same token, if we, if we choose to obey, we are saying to God, change me. Don't leave me the same. Make me different this year than I was last year. Alter who I am and make me different. Make me more like thee. So I wasn't done, so I, I, wanted, to, I, I wanted to go back into, this also goes back into the teachings of the scriptures, yeah. where how, that's what I see a lot of different types of churches that are doing, is, is interpreting the language, okay? And that was, has a lot to do with, not necessarily, it's not necessarily what the teaching was incorrect at the time. Yeah. So what is correct for our time, it might not be the same. What we're teaching is the same. Yeah. It's the language we need to be using is correct. I like that. I, 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 I like that. I, I think that's accurate. I, and I think our under, as our understanding gets better, we alter our language to better understand what God knew all along. Correct. That, that, that's a great point. I, I appreciate that. That's true. Um, and so our, our maturity as a church is growing to the point where we understand much more powerfully this change process that we're talking about. Because just think how often we want to just kind of not be disturbed very much. C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that in our prayers, in our, in our very room, God is changing us as we pray. That to open our hearts up to let His Spirit in, you don't let His Spirit in with an idea to remain the same. You open up your heart in prayer, in worship, to be altered by Him. So don't be surprised when you're being expected to do different things 
based on your now information. And that's why we've been warned for so long Lukewarm just sets us up, doesn't it? Is that we can't just kind of be sliding along here because you're going to be drawn by somebody who is very, very skilled at pulling you in his direction. Very subtly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not right, is it? Did you guys hear that? So, so state, state president in Colorado told them they had to sit in a different place in the every Sunday for sacrament meeting. Well, that would be chaos. <laughs> this is our role. You, you guys are sitting on the Hinkley row right here. You don't know it, but on Sundays, this belongs to us. <laughs> and we get here early so we can throw our stuff on there so nobody gets in the way of our row. And, and then when somebody comes early and they're actually visiting and they sit in our row, then my granddaughter comes right down this aisle and she stands there and she looks at him. Like, Dad, there's somebody in our row. And just guilts the heck out of them. And, and about half the time they go, oh, sorry, and they get up and move and get in somebody else's row. <laughs> kind of like that. I think that's kind of cool. Boy, would that cause chaos. All right. Yeah. This is intriguing a little bit. You don't want to go there. What about the millennium? Children are going to be born in the millennium. Yeah. Satan's going to be bound. How, how much of this testing is how, how does that? Oh, okay. He's saying if, if this is about testing, what about the millennium? Uh, but um, and then because Satan is bound during that time, are they really getting enticed? Into, you know what? I don't know. I, I don't have an answer to that. I know kind of what's been suggested, but I don't. that's a good question. Doesn't part of our joy come from knowing that we choose overcame, overcame something? That overcame and trusted him while he changed us? Yeah, I know. I mean, I've heard it suggested that there, there will be a testing part for them and, and it comes maybe at the end of the millennium or something. I don't know. It's never really been revealed. And, and, and anything we know about that is guessing. Well, how many people today hear the gospel and don't accept it? That will happen then, too. Sure. Yeah, there'll be a lot of missionary work going on. Okay. Now, so, so what we're really talking about, if we, are, if we are being changed by the atonement, that this salvation that we hold that is given to us, is going to alter us so that we are then in a place to receive the greatest gift of all, which is the joy. Joy is the name given to the eternal state of people that have been altered to where they can receive this level of eternal happiness. Okay? So here is... Behold, all things have been done in wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Adam fell that men might be. But men are. Men are created to fill their purpose. To fill the, the end of their creation. That is, men were created so that they may have joy. Be filled with joy. Okay? So 2 Nephi 9 says, Wherefore,
therefore, we shall have a perfect knowledge of all of our guilt. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> How could we have joy if we have a perfect knowledge of our guilt? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Wouldn't it be better if it's like all, it was removed completely from our minds? So that we just can like be eternally stupid? We're going to be brain wiped? Wouldn't that be awesome? How can we have how can we have this perfect knowledge of our guilt and our cleanness? Did I do a typo? And our okay I did, thank you. Who wrote this anyway? Wherefore we have the perfect knowledge of all of our guilt and our uncleanliness and our nakedness. We'll have this perfect knowledge. And the righteous, in addition to all that knowledge, the righteous will also what? Have a perfect knowledge of their enjoyment. Interesting word, isn't it? What does it mean to enjoy? It means to be infused with joy. You are filled with joy. You are joyed. You have been joined. You've been filled with joy. You're going to have a perfect knowledge of your sins and everything you did and a perfect knowledge of your joy. Okay? And their righteousness being clothed with purity even the robe of righteousness being the atonement. Why will we be so eternally grateful to our God and to the Savior? Because we will have an all, a remembrance of our sins and of all of our dumb stuff and we will have a perfect understanding of how clean we are in spite of that. And both of those together will increase our gratitude that says, oh my gosh, these things happen and I am so cleaned, I am wrapped in His robe and I, and I am worthy to be here in His presence. Yeah. Yeah. Then he's filled with the Yeah. Yeah, hang on to that one because if we don't get a lot of other questions, but my plan is for next week in 45 minutes to do the Psalm of Nephi uh, next next week. Well, 45 minutes to do this magnificent Psalm of Nephi, 2nd Nephi 4. Um that was, that, by the way, when I was taking Hebrew at, at BYU from a, from a uh, visiting scholar, Yonatan Shinari, that, that Psalm of Nephi that we're going to do next week was the one that so struck this non-Mormon Israelite scholar that he wrote it out for us in Hebrew for each one of us to take home because he just thought it was the most magnificent thing in all the Book of Mormon, the Psalm of Nephi. My favorite. Okay, That's next week. Okay. All right. Now, along with this idea then of joy, um, let me just share this with you. I, I, I happened to come across something uh, this uh, this week uh, that just that I just jumped at uh, because partly because I love C.S. Lewis so much. Just this year, they found an unpublished letter 
from C.S. Lewis. Somebody had, had found a book of his, they bought a book of his at a second-hand bookstore. Old book. And they opened it up and there was a letter from C.S. Lewis in the book to a friend of his. Specifically talking about joy. Well, it is, it is interesting that this is about two years, three years before he will write In Search of Joy. Uh, and about that time is when he's marrying his wife, Joy. And then he will lose Joy. She will die of cancer. And then he will talk about the problem of pain uh, in losing Joy. But for him, it was about Joy. Yeah. Yeah. Before she... Before she became a poet in America. Yeah. 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 He married a he married a poet. Uh, okay. So so this is so, so this is eighteen this is nineteen forty five, uh, and and he's writing about joy, and he puts joy and and he's gonna he's gonna put it alongside pleasure, because sometimes the world is and when they're looking at happiness they want to ascribe happiness and pleasure. And he's going to talk about joy as only C.S. Lewis can. Okay. Someday I hope they'll have this public. By the way, if you have if you have uh, fifteen hundred pounds that you don't know what to do with, this letter is up for auction next week. <laughs> I guess we should tell Reed Moon, right? <laughs> How did he get Tolkien's ring? Unbelievable. <laughs> Read amazing. Okay. Alright, so here here's this here's like I say, you can buy this letter in two weeks or it's an auction in, in <laughs> Real joy, he says, seems to me almost as unlike security of prosperity as it is unlike agony. And here's the description that I just loved. Joy jumps under one's ribs and tickles down one's back and makes one forget meals and keeps one delightedly sleepless o' nights. It shocks one away when the other puts one to sleep. My private table of one second of joy is worth 12 hours of pleasure. I think you really quite agree with me. Joy must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and pleasure. Joy in my sense has one characteristics and one only in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. And then, and then this is the statement that I thought was so profound against what, we have, what we've been talking about. <clears throat> I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. <coughs> But then joy is never in our power. And pleasure often is. Why is pleasure, why is joy not 
ready to answer this one. Okay, hold on. Why is joy not in our power? It's a gift. It's a gift, right? Isn't that awesome? It's a tangible gift. It, it is something given to... We can't control it, but we can put ourselves in a place to receive it. Isn't that amazing? I just think he just nailed, nailed the essence of joy. It is being changed so that our hearts can receive the full power of joy. And it takes the Spirit to change us, to act upon us. Does that make sense? Wow. I don't know. Let, let it sink in. Okay. Well, while that's sinking in, I have... Uh, a friend to come up with a picture for slide. That, that's part of it. Um, okay, let's do this one. I, I, I'm going to do this one quick, and then I've got, I've got, I want to finish with two quotes that I think specifically nail down the joy aspect of what we're talking about. But, but, I, but I don't want to miss this point. So let's go to Second Nephi forty-two, forty-three. Sometimes part of the struggle for this class is finding the right pictures. <laughs> Okay, 2 Nephi 9. While I'm going there, let me just preface it with this. When we talk about joy, and then we juxtapose that against misery, we talk about eternal joy and eternal misery. And we talk about, uh, like, terrorists and the horrible things that they do, and just wait till they get to the other side, and you know, then they're going to know, and they'll be miserable. Or, or what happens to those on the other side that uh, don't keep the commandments, and they're going to know forever what they missed, and that's going to be eternal hell. That's hell, not knowing what we could have had and not being able to get there. So, so that would leave us eternally miserable, right? It's not what Jacob says. Here's what he says. Uh, 42. Whoso knocketh to him will he open the wise, the learned, they that are rich, that are puffed up in their learning, their wisdom, their riches. Yea, they, des- uh, they are whom the, the, the Lord desires or despises their learning, their wisdom, their riches. And say they shall cast these away and consider themselves fools before God. I love that. We all have to... There is a phrase there that, if, that we could probably take another half hour on. Part, part of being changed is we have to consider ourselves fools before God. We are fools because we think we're smarter. So part of our humility and repentance and growth and changing is recognizing that we are fools before God. I, I just love that phrase. Okay, And come down into the depths of humility. And if they don't do all that, he won't open to them. But look at 43. But the things of the wise and the prudent and the righteous will be hid from them forever. The most merciful thing that God in His mercy can do to the wicked is not to have them spend eternity knowing what they missed. He loves them too much. They're still His children. He loves them too much to have them spend the rest of eternity knowing what they missed. 
That would be eternal misery. That's not the God we worship. He says, I will, I will eternally hide from them the things that they could have had. So that there are going to be those walking around in the celestial kingdom still thinking they're the greatest thing on the planet. And not knowing whatever else they could have had. And he will let them be that way. Is that incredible? If you just let that sink in for just a second. Wait till those terrorists get to the other side and they find out that it was Jesus and they did all those bad things. And now they get to spend eternity being, you know, feeling stupid and foolish. God loves them too much to have them do that. He's going to let them kind of, He's going to hold things back from them so that they don't do that. Yeah. To a certain extent, they will. But in terms of, th- think about all of the wonderful Christians out there who, who, are gonna, who, are, who want Jesus and a, and a place with clouds and harps. And they will spend the rest of eternity endlessly grateful that they get to meet Jesus from time to time and they're in a place with clouds and harps. And not know the full extent of the celestial kingdom and eternal increase, they won't understand that part. He's going to hide that from them. He loves them too much to have them spend the rest of eternity knowing what they miss. Even them are going to be hardened and blinded to the fact that they're not going to necessarily believe it or something, I think. You just get some sense to the extent how much he'll hide, I don't know. I think there's that point. There might be some weeping and wailing for some things. But, but So the extent of this, we don't know. Like I say, I just, I haven't, I'm reading this. I also, I can't find anything from the brethren that have written any more beyond what this just says. So the full extent of that, I have no idea. I just think it's, it's amazing that it's there. And I think we're entitled, almost like being in the temple, we're entitled to our own inspiration maybe about what that means. Yeah, here and then here. I think um, with, you know, terrorists and those that have done horrible things on the earth, my sorrow is for when they realize what they've done. Yeah. They still have access to the atonement because they didn't know. But that sorrow has got to be just torturous. Can you in your thoughts conceive of one of these uh, ISIS terrorists ending up in the celestial kingdom? Mm-hmm. They never knew. <coughs> They may. They never knew. I know. They were trying. I know. To that's, that's why it's this jump here. We go, wait a minute. Well, for those of us that have wandering and hardened relatives mm-hmm. and family members, I hope that's the case. Yeah. Right. And, and can we extend this to some of the more evil people that we know and then, and then pray like crazy that they'll finally get it? Yeah. I agree with her. <laughs> okay. Well, since we were talking about being hidden, yeah. it cross-references to the Bible with 1 Corinthians 2, um, 9, it starts with 9. But I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Ah, so there are going to be some, even in the eternities, that it still won't enter into their heart because they've chosen not to accept the gift. Right. That's interesting. Great, great point. Okay. Five minutes, two quotes. Yeah. What does it mean on 44? The whole, I take out my garments and 
Isn't that awesome? I wish we had time to work on that. <laughs> I, be- I believe that Jacob, if you look at Jacob 1, at the, right at the end of Jacob 1, he's going to, and we, we, we may come back to this one. I believe Jacob 1 is going to talk about that they taught the people the doctrines uh, so that their garments would not be spotted with their blood. And I think, I think this is part of that. I think he literally, at this point, takes off his garment and he goes, I have now taught you my garments are clean. I think it was a wonderful little object lesson that Jacob is. Uh, is and I shake them before you. Isn't that awesome? Okay. Five minutes. Four minutes. It's too close. <laughs> for the new narrative it introduces about who we are and where humanity comes from. It's a restoring of life that we embrace as a true reflection of things as they are. Our, our, uh, our uh, guide in Greece says, as Greeks, how did she put it, Cindy? As Greeks, life is, make life make no sense. Yeah, as Greeks, life makes no sense when she looked at how the, the wickedness and stuff in the world. Life makes no sense. This includes a conception of God not as a vapor or an essence or an immensity filling all space, but as a literal father and mother from whom all humanity inherits a divine potential at the deepest level of our DNA. No matter what else is faced or felt in life, the future possibilities of growing up like mom and dad touch every aspect of life for the Mormon community. That's why Mormons get married, enjoy children and family, and have an interest in sharing our convictions with the rest of the world. As one of our apostles has said, our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. That's enjoying. That's enjoyment. Okay? Now, let me then put this again. This is a non-Mormon scholar, and I want to finish with this. This is a non-Mormon scholar writing about the church. And his, his insights, I think, are fabulous. Okay. The Mormon doctrine of deification, becoming like God. And by the way, let, let me stop for a second. What is it when people say to us... As a Mormon, do you believe that you're going to become a god and have your own planets? Goddess. When was the last time you heard that one taught in General Conference? When was the last time you read that in any of our curriculum magazines? When was the last time you saw that in the Enzyme? What do we believe as Mormons? 
We're going to become like God. What does that mean? We don't know. This is one of those Mormon Mishnah things. How it will look like, it may be exactly what, we, what we're, we're describing, but it isn't being taught. It's not in our career. We don't know what that means. It just says we will become like God. We become like our parents. And beyond that, I think we're better off saying we don't know what that means. It's in, it's in the New Testament. It's in our scriptures. We don't know what that means. Okay? But, he says, even at this level, the Mormon doctrine of deification becoming like God presents something heartwarming. Deification among the Latter-day Saints is not a matter of a lonely individual buried in contemplation. To become a God, one must become a God in the midst of family. As a husband, wife, daughter, son, father, or mother progressing with the family into higher and higher levels of godhood. Mormonism does not so much teach the deification of the individual as the deification of the family. Is he nailing this? And the larger family of the church. Godhood is eternal communion. And the increase of this communion with God and with each other. And then he says this, and I just, I just think this is so profound. It is not just the rule and domination of other planets. It is the progression and infinite multiplication of love. And, and in, the, in the church we would call that what? Joy. That is, if I could come up with the definition for joy as God uses the word joy it would be the progression and infinite multiplication of love that is joy coming from a non-Mormon scholar brothers and sisters I believe with all my heart that the Lord intends to change us into some different creature from where we are that as we move through our life, that the purpose of obedience is the ability to place ourselves in a place where He can change us. <clears throat> if we don't obey, and if we don't, if we don't go through the saving ordinances of the gospel, and if we don't go through the temple, we don't place ourselves in a position where He can alter who we are and make us to what He has in mind. I think that's the goal. And what he's making us into is a creature that has the capacity to love endlessly and to be filled with joy. That's who we are. And at this Christmas time, when you look at the word joy all over the place, I want you to see it in a different light because man is that he might have joy. And, and the world has no idea the full power of what that word really, really means. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.